pressure is our constant companion. And, and I do think sometimes people feel like pressure is this like nasty byproduct of life oh. that I just got to like minimize and kind of deal with and bubble wrap and try to, you know, store over there somewhere. You know, my belief on this is that pressure is not just like this inevitable nasty thing we have to deal yeah. with. It's an essential input. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. So let me officially welcome you to our live episode of the Inspire podcast. And joining me, very fortunate to have Dane Jensen, uh, CEO of Third Factor. Dane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Bart. It's uh, awesome to be here live and in person. Yeah, and welcome back to the podcast. I should I should do you justice and say this is your your repeat offender or repeat guest. You must <laughs> you must have. Uh, I guess the rule is if you write a book, you get back on the pod. So nice to have you back. That's why I wrote the book was to to get invited back to the podcast. That's that was right. the main goal. So yeah. your dream is your dream is realized today. It's right. <laughs> well, for for those listening, hopefully you've all subscribed to the pod already. Uh, just some quick context for who I am, who Dane is, and what brings us together. The Inspire Podcast is a podcast I've been hosting for coming up on three years now. And we've approaching 100 episodes. And it's really been an opportunity to talk to people about what it takes to intentionally inspire. Dane was an early guest on that. And, uh, you know, I, I joke it's niche famous. I'm proud we, we've crossed 50,000 listens. Podcast is heard all over the world. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity for me to ask bright people about how to communicate in a way that leads. And so, Dane, uh, it's great to have you back. And, and Dane is here uh, representing the um, third factor. And we are proud to have this event put together by the Niagara Institute. So for those of you who don't know the Niagara Institute, it's uh, a longstanding institution. I'm proud to be chairman there whose focus is on bringing learning to the everyday leader. And third factor, uh, Dane's business, is a partner of the Niagara Institute. So kind of a great fusion of Niagara, Third Factor, and the Humphrey Group. And we're really fortunate to have Dane. You know, he's incredibly credentialed. And, uh, and I'll try and just say a few great things about him. We, we could spend the whole pod, but uh, he's the CEO of Third Factor. He's an instructor at Queen's uh, Smith School of Business in Canada, where he's taught on resilience for many years. Uh, and he more recently has forged a great partnership with the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, he's been an advisor to, I, I got to get the numbers right here, companies in 23 countries on five continents, though I'm sure with all the travel you're doing, Dane, that number is going up. And he's written in HBR, Harvard Business Review, and he's got this great book. You can see it lurking behind him there, uh, The Power of That's Pressure. Right. I've read the book. I was Fortunate enough to get an advanced copy. I, I, you know, a lot of business books come my way. I read this one cover to cover. It's an easy read, but a compelling read. And I think that's the sign of great writing. Um, and Dane coaches. Uh, he speaks all over the world. And he also has a grounding in work with athletes in Canada to help them reach high performance. So, Dane, with that, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's, it's awesome to be back. Genuinely, it's great. Yeah, and I've done a lot of talking, so I'm going to start by putting you on the spot as these pods go, you know, and let's delve into, like, the book is all about pressure and why it's not something to be feared, but rather a solution. So what led you to write the book? Yeah, you know, the book actually came together reasonably uh, organically, I would say, um, and, and it came about as a result of me kind of stumbling into what I kind of jokingly call this this magic portal, uh, which is kind of a hokey way of talking about it. But but honestly, that's that's kind of what it felt like at the start. Uh, and this magic portal kind of took the shape of this one question that I started asking people. Um, and it's the question, what's the most pressure you've ever been under? Hmm. 
and, and this was a question that I, you know, as I said, I kind of started asking organically, as you mentioned, I teach resilience. I've taught that for, for years. And, and this was a great question initially, just as kind of an icebreaker at lunch or on a break, just to kind of get people talking and connecting with each other. But, but honestly, almost from the first time I asked the question, I realized that it kind of had this unique power because on the other side of that question, and it honestly doesn't matter who you ask it of, you know, there is a remarkable story that is that is rooted in some pretty interesting wisdom. And so mm-hmm. I started to get a lot more deliberate uh, about asking what's the most pressure you've ever been under. I, I sought interesting people out. I, uh, you know, I, I added a bunch of follow up questions. What made it so high pressure? Uh, what did you do? Did that help? Did that hurt? Uh, what did other people do? Did that help? Did that hurt? Uh, and so, you know, through collecting all of these stories, I was able to perform a bit of pattern recognition. And I started to go, hey, you know, there's actually some interesting, some interesting insights here. And I have a bit of a unique vantage point to ask that question from, because as you mentioned, you know, at Third Factor, we're, we're kind of like this, this sort of octopus, you know, of cross-pollination. You know, we sit at the intersection of all of these different worlds where people have to perform under pressure, the worlds of sport, business, government, academia. So I had a chance to ask Olympic athletes. I had a chance to ask Navy SEALs, emergency yeah. positions. Uh, but honestly, more important than that, uh, I had a chance to ask hundreds of you know busy managers, people who are raising kids and caring for aging parents about the pressure they're under. Uh, and that's where a lot of the interesting insights uh, came from that hopefully we're going to we're going to kind of get into today. But it, re- it really did start with this question right here, which is, what's the most pressure you've ever been under? That, that's really at the heart of the book. Yeah. And I think, you know, you look at the year, the two years, we're coming up on two years since we launched into this global pandemic. And I think pressure has been the name of the game for leaders, for managers, anyone really in the business world. And two, I know you're going to talk about two kinds of pressure later, but I'm curious, you know, so for those who haven't read the book, what were some of the answers you got to the question? Like, what were the most interesting <laughs> ones? Because uh, it's a great question. <laughs> so I, I think the, the place I'll start, because this is this is a story that seems to really stick with people. And it really stuck with me uh, as one of those examples of, oh, yeah, that's pressure. And this is a story from uh, from a woman who's manager at a government agency uh, here in Ontario. And she kind of flashed back to this period in her career where she was responsible for orchestrating, and and you'll relate to this with your background in communications, she was responsible for orchestrating a highly choreographed day where the agency was going to be rolling out a restructuring. Uh, They were announcing layoffs, they were announcing reorganization, and and this had kind of been bubbling for a while. They had merged Mm -hmm. two agencies and people kind of knew that something was coming down the pike. Uh, And then finally, the day arrived after months of planning of how they were going to coordinate the communication and roll out of this thing. And her day started, her morning was spent having four one-on-one conversations with people who were exiting the organization, who were being asked to leave. So it's a pretty tough morning. And then she sprinted across town to a conference center where they were about to kick off six simultaneous regional meetings uh, where they were going to announce the plans. And so she parked herself in the room with the biggest region. And about 50% of the people were in the room. 50% were joining remotely by Zoom. And at one minute to one o'clock when they were going to kick off the meeting, the AV failed completely. Totally. Nobody could hear. Nobody could see. Nobody could join remotely. So she said the regional president looked right at her because she's the planner. She looks around for an AV team. There's no tech team in the room. So she takes off out of the room, runs down the hallway, decides to take a, a shortcut through a stairwell. And as she goes into the stairwell, the door closes behind her and she hears a click. Oh. And so she runs over to the door, grabs it, and, and she's frantic. It turns doors locked. She looks down at her phone. No cell service, right? She is locked inside of a concrete stairwell right. with no cell service and 600 people on the other side who are waiting to hear if they still have jobs or not, right? If this is you wow. know something that's going to be different. And so for me, like <laughs> that's pressure, right? That is yeah. significant pressure. Um, and if if you're willing, Bart, I thought actually what you know one thing I could do potentially just to make this a little interactive, given mm-hmm. that it is a live podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, do you okay if we survey some folks on on the line? Yeah, here around the most yeah, let's, let's do it. I love it. Okay, let's because I, I do that with a normal is, pod. Let's yeah, go for it. why not? Right, you can't you yeah. can't do audience uh, engagement when it's pre-recorded. Right. So. Uh, so I thought I would ask the folks that are joining here today this question, just because it's always interesting in a group of any size, what kind of responses you get. And so for the folks that are, are listening in here that have joined and can hopefully see the screen, what is the most pressure you've ever been under? And then just on, a, on reflection, 
What's the one sentence? And this is, of course, completely anonymous, but, you know, we're not collecting any data whatsoever. What is the most pressure that you've ever been under? And I kind of pre-populated it here with a, with a little one sentence on Jen, you know, locked in a stairwell with failing AV. But I'll give everybody uh, just a few seconds to collect their thoughts, find their way to the poll and, and hopefully share for you. What is the most pressure you've ever been under? Okay. So it looks like people have found their way to the poll, which is great. I'll just give everybody a few minutes to, uh, or a few seconds to, to type and hit submit. All right, even with just the first few responses in, uh, well, others uh, let their thumbs catch up with their brains. Let's take a look at what we've got uh, going on here. So, uh, you know, delivering multiple layoffs at the same time. So, you know, a part of Jen's story, the pressure of having to deliver really difficult news and, you know, as somebody who's had to deliver that message a few times myself, absolutely, right? You get that incredible feeling of discomfort uh, physiologically. Uh, that's the kind of thing that the night before keeps you up, makes it hard to sleep because, you know, you've got this conversation coming up the next day or, or multiple conversations. Uh, wife about to deliver a baby and, and they lose the heartbeat and rush her into the operating room. So here we're dealing with like existential pressure, the pressure of life and death and the, the decisions that I make my ability to get there quickly to make sure, you know, those things really have significant stakes attached to them. Uh, not having a job during the pandemic, right? So the pandemic, we'll, we'll get into this, but it has been a real microcosm of all of the things that create significant pressure, the, the hugely important things like financial security uh, and, uh, uh, and health and, and safety of our loved ones. Uh, stuck in an elevator between floors on my way to give a talk to 300 people. This is one that I can relate to uh, <laughs> very personally. And, and just the unbelievable feeling that starts to rise and rise and rise and rise as you go from, oh, I'm sure this thing will start moving to like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Right. There's 300 people waiting on the other side of this thing uh, in charge of an army platoon in wartime. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the stories I heard for the book was Kirk Cronin, a Navy SEAL team commander, talking about the pressure of leading others into potentially dangerous situations, uh, running behind on bills and being around the family with expectations. So, again, just hugely important, highly uncertain stuff, uh, managing two jobs, helping four family members immigrate to Canada and start from scratch, uh, you, you know. I want everybody to just take a peek at what's on screen here. And thank you to those who who uh, who made the decision to share something reasonably personal here. One of the things that has been the most profound learnings from this project, uh, because I've now asked thousands of people these questions or this, this question in particular, is that I can honestly say now, whenever I walk into a room, whether it's a virtual room or a physical room, I have a deeper appreciation for the experiences that any collective of people brings to their work, to their life, to a session like this one. It, you know, it, it never fails to amaze me whether the group is 10 people or 1,000 people, the depth of experience that we all have in navigating really high pressure situations. This, this is that old line, you know, you know, other people are always dealing with stuff that you don't know anything about. Everybody's fighting a battle you know nothing about. I think the same is true with pressure. The amount of collective experience around pressure in any group is remarkable. The other thing you see reflected on here that is it is very typical of uh, of surveying a group on this question is just how broad the range of experiences are. Right. We have everything in here from, you know, classic sort of microcosm things like I got to deliver a big speech and I'm getting delayed all the way to the life and death stuff of, you know, a child without a heartbeat or commanding an army platoon. Uh, you know, there's stuff that is, you know, the gamut from little moments of pressure to periods of pressure. So, yeah, I, I think pressure really does span, you know, the, the vast range of human experiences. And what I really took as my task for the book was to say, OK, as different as all of these things are. What do they share? What do they have in common? Because there are patterns in pressure, right? Mm -hmm. There are patterns in the stuff that creates it. There are patterns in some of the problems it can cause. And I think most hopefully there's patterns in what, what we can do about it, how we can use it uh, really productively. Uh, so so I, I thought this could be an interesting grounding just to see what everybody's bringing in. But but that's, you know, those patterns are certainly where my interest went. Yeah, it's super, super interesting. I mean, I think, you know, when you talk a couple things that stand out to me, you know, one, as you said, is this breadth of experiences that create pressure. And and secondly, the difference of types of pressure, you know, you describe, I mean, you you have terminology around it, you know, whether it's existential or kind of sustained. And, and I think, you know, the last thing that 
resonated with me from reading your book is just the fact that like we are all going to deal with pressure for life, you know, right. but there are better ways to deal with that. You know, often when people have come to the Humphrey group and say, you know, Hey, I'd like to be not face pressure when I go to give a public address, or I wish I could get away from the stress. And I say, you know, it, that never happens, but never. how you mentally approach it, how you prepare for it can help you embrace it and manage it. And I think what you've really done in the book with, actually creating an equation around pressure uh, to me is the beginning of that understanding and almost demystification of pressure. So maybe you could talk a bit about like what you learned in your research and how you came up with what I thought was a very compelling equation for pressure. Well, yeah. And Bart, I want to just really reinforce what you said there, which is pressure is our constant companion. And, and I do think sometimes people feel like pressure is this like nasty byproduct of life mm. that I just got to like minimize and kind of deal with and bubble wrap and try to, you know, store over there somewhere. And, and, and you know, my belief on this is that pressure is not just like this inevitable nasty thing we have to deal mm. with. It's an essential input into performance. You know, you don't get high pressure without performance. Pressure is inherent in the human journey of growth and development. If I'm going to do stuff I haven't done before, I'm going to experience pressure. Mm. And at the same time, Pressure is a double-edged sword. You're absolutely right, right? It, it is uncomfortable. It can lead to burnout. It can lead to mental injury. It can lead to stress leave. And, you know, so there are absolutely downsides to pressure. And at the same time, when I talk to people about their highest pressure moments, you know, inevitably what I also hear is that, you know, it was actually the energy under that pressure hmm. that gave me the strength that I needed to handle that situation. Like, you know, pressure is a source of energy. When you look right. at like where do more world records get set in sport than anywhere else, they get set at the Olympics. Why? Because there's pressure, right? right? It's the pressure that is that source of energy that can help propel us forward. So, so pressure very much is a, is a double-edged sword to your yeah. point. And I think, you know, Carl Jung said decades ago, what we resist persists. And I think when people try to push the pressure away, it just gets magnified with a sense of helplessness. It's mm -hmm. that ability to open yourself up to go, okay, here it is. What am I going to do with that energy? Mm -hmm. And I think the ability to use it productively comes back to, to where you finished your question, which is the, the equation. Like if we're going to manage pressure productively, we got to understand what creates it in the first place. And right. so that was what I kind of went in search of, right? Was when we look at all of these experiences what do they have in common? What are the things that create these high pressure moments? And, and it turns out, you know, it's actually deceptively simple. Like pressure is not as complicated as, as it appears at first. You really only need two things for people to experience pressure in an environment. And I'll use a little bit of a visual aid here just to, to build the equation. But the first thing that you need is importance. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, how important the outcome of a situation is to us is directly proportional to the amount of pressure that we feel. We, we don't feel pressure if stuff doesn't matter to us, if we don't care about about the outcome. But but just because something is important to us doesn't necessarily mean we're going to feel pressure. There has to be a second thing in the in the air, and that's uh, uncertainty. Hmm. Right. You know, so this is where human beings experience pressure. We experience at the intersection of, hey, this really matters to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how it's going to go. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it's going to turn out. When you yeah. say uncertainty, are you talking about uncertainty of the outcome? Are you talking about uncertainty of how you'll perform or just describe a bit more that what you mean by that term? Yeah, it all ladders back from the uncertainty of the outcome. Uh, and, and of course, what ratchets up the uncertainty around the outcome is the uncertainty around your performance. I mean, the outcome in most situations is, is almost always uncertain, right? Uh, it, 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 but our performance, our confidence in our preparation is a huge way that we can, you know, reduce uncertainty to, to some extent. But it really is the outcome. And that goes back to importance as well, by mm -hmm. the way. I, I mm -hmm. had a really astute question uh, a couple of months back where, where somebody said, well, you know, how come I feel pressure when I'm doing work that I don't even think is important? Uh, and it's like, okay, well, the, the task may seem important, unimportant to you, but, you know, probably having a job is important to you and, you know, not getting fired is important, you know, so it's actually the outcome that is at stake that really is what kind of correlates to pressure, uh, not necessarily the importance of the task. And I think that, you know, the multiplication sign in here is, is very deliberate, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, we kind of played around with how to write this equation and the multiplication sign basically represents the fact that the more important a situation is, the less uncertainty it requires to create pressure. 
So if I'm doing something that's relatively unimportant, like just mm-hmm. to use a simple example, let's say I buy, buy a $5 lottery ticket, you know, the 99.99% uncertainty, it doesn't really create that much pressure. Right. But if I'm getting, you know, wheeled down the hospital corridor to a life-saving operation with a 90% success rate, right. you know, the 10% uncertainty is going to create a fair bit of pressure for me. So it really is this sort of combination of, of importance and uncertainty. I think what's a little bit unique, you know, in the modern world, because you could argue, hey, human beings have had to deal with important, uncertain situations since the dawn of time. In fact, go back to the start of the 20th century, two world wars, hugely important, highly uncertain, you know, in many ways, you know, importance and uncertainty have been just constants. I think the thing that's a little bit unique that I heard over and over again uh, from people I talked to about the modern world is just volume. Right. Just the sheer amount of tasks, of decisions, of distractions that really surround our important, uncertain, uh, important, uncertain moments. Um, and so that's really it. Those are the three things. There's importance, there are uncertainty and volume. And if you diagnose kind of when you're feeling really you know, pressurized, it typically comes down to some combination of, of those three things uh, right. as we think about it. So when let's delve into those a bit, just throw some questions out there. You know, first on the macro equation of, or macro look at this equation, are they all like equivalent? In other words, mm. if you really thought of them as math, right? Is it really, <laughs> you know, apple, apple, apple? Like, is it three times three times three? Or are they weighted differently in your research? I think in, in, it's a great question. I think it each high pressure situation presents itself with a different weighting of these three things. So it's like over the course of a life, are they equally weighted? I think yes, um, but I think it is very asymmetrical depending on the situation you find yourselves in. Mm -hmm. And and so in in particular, I see a really big distinction between what I call in the book peak pressure moments versus the grind or the long Mm -hmm. haul. Both are pressure, Mm -hmm. right? But, But peak pressure moments really are dominated over here. Right. Right. They really are about like this hugely important, highly uncertain thing. And they collide in a speech or an Olympic performance or an entrance exam or a job interview. Right. It's like this violent collision of this really matters to me and I don't know how it's going to go. But then it's over. Mm. Right. And and maybe it goes really well and we feel a sense of pride and accomplishment. Maybe it goes really poorly and we feel a sense of regret or dissatisfaction, but we don't feel pressure anymore. Right. The pressure is gone versus, you know, when we think about the grind or the long haul, it tends to be dominated a little more over here, where it's more like just what's the load that I'm carrying Mm -hmm. over a longer period of time. Uh, And and it is, you know, shot through with importance and uncertainty. You know, yeah, it's important I keep my job and it's important that, you know, my kids get to school and I make my mortgage payments. But it's not this like acute binary sense of importance. Mm -hmm. That's more the background hum but it's the volume that's kind of dominating a little bit. That's very that's very helpful, and I think you know. Well, I'd like to delve into that sustain versus peak. I mean, I you know I put in the into your Q and A. It was me whose wife was you know wheeled into the OR, uh, and that was the ultimate sustained pressure moment for us. You know, waiting to yep. ha- have a delivery, and then suddenly the shock, and then as soon as it happened, then it was over, and they refound the heartbeat. So it was. But that moment, you know, it was the least volume possible, but the highest intensity for for me and for her Absolutely. experience. So totally yeah. the antithesis of then, you know, your first year as a parent where it's just volume. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's it's a great example. Yeah. That's yeah. the peak pressure followed by the grind, right? The peak pressure yeah. resolves. And, and it's like, I think oh, that's one goodness. of the hardest things about when you when you become a parent, you go through this acute peak pressure moment, and then you you normally would recover, and then they're like, Great, here's your child. <laughs> you know, stop sleeping for the next year. So, you know, it's funny, Bart, though, that you raise that because I think that to me is a great, you know, the birth of a child in particular, the first child is to me a great example of the power of pressure, which is, it's like, so what is it that allows us as parents, as human beings to sustain for six months on no sleep, you know, with abject terror that we are screwing everything up, Mm -hmm. you know, following you know, it's, it's the energy under pressure. It's like, we feel this sense of like, I got to do something here. I, you know, this is important. And if I don't, you know, do this correctly, uh, yeah, it's a little bit uncertain. So, so yeah, I I think that is a really good example of, of how kind of things uh, come together a bit. 
So let, let's talk about each of the components and how you should think about them if you want to better manage pressure. Because I'm imagining that your mental framing around these is helpful. So let's let's take, we, we've talked about volume in a moment, but let's go back to importance. Should yeah. you... Should you reduce your pressure by like trying to think that something is less important? Like what advice cognitively do you give to people to try and lessen that pressure on the importance front? Yeah, this is this is this is where stuff starts to get fun because I think the the story here is delightfully complicated and delightfully almost symmetrical. Um, so you know, I talked up front about how pressure itself is kind of this double-edged sword. Uh, you know, it can be a real source of energy, it can be energizing, and it can be overwhelming. And, and, and the same is actually true for every component part of pressure, importance, uncertainty, and volume. And so importance is a, is a great way to start to unpack this uh, sort of paradox that, yeah, we need things to be important, and importance can be can be overwhelming. And so I think that, you know, the, the way this kind of plays out in reality comes back to this notion of the difference between peak pressure moments and the grind. Right. So when we are going through long haul pressure, right, when we have the days, uh -huh. the weeks, the months, the years in those kind of prolonged periods. And this is a great example. You know, you're, 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 you're giving birth to a child example is a great example of this. Right. Through that first year, we have to really consciously work to pull importance close to clear a line of sight from what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis up to why does this really matter to me, right? What's really important about what I'm doing here? And, you know, with the birth of a child, that's a relatively easy exercise. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy to clear a line of sight. Sometimes at work, it's a little bit trickier. That's why we have, you know, exercises around purpose and connecting with your why. It's why Simon Sinek had to write a great book. You know, mm -hmm. it's, there's a discipline to being able to connect what I am doing up to why this really matters. And in my experience, when I talk to people, because one of the things that I started diving into in that area was, okay, well, what is the path that you took to importance? If you were able to find a line of sight from your daily you know, decisions and tasks up to importance, what, what route did you take? And in general, there are really only three. Like meaning can seem like this big, amorphous, you know, vague idea of connecting with meaning. In my opinion, there's really only three paths. To what are they? There, there is growth, okay. which is you get a good answer to the question, how is this pressure helping me grow? That can give meaning to pressure. Mm -hmm. If I feel like it's strengthening me, it's moving me forward in a way that matters. Uh, the second path is contribution, which is I get to a good answer to the question, you know, how is enduring this pressure benefiting others? Uh, that is certainly the path that we take with our children. Uh, it's the path that many people in healthcare have had to take over the past two years as they tolerate, you know, unbelievable uh, levels of pressure. And, and then the third path is connection. Yeah. which is getting to a good answer to, you know, how is this pressure bringing me closer to the people that I care about? Which for many, you know, regular people through the pandemic, that's the one that I heard the most of during the pandemic was like, yeah, this is really heavy, but, you know, I, it brought me closer to my kids. I spent more time with my family. I wasn't on the road as much. Like, I, you know, I actually got a chance to, to really connect. And but so I think over hearing, the long haul, you, you got to answer one of those three questions. Yeah, that, that may, that's really helpful. What I'm hearing from you on the importance front is not that, that connecting to your importance and choosing one of those three paths is the way to do it. It's not going to reduce the pressure, but it will make it allow you to perform through it and to, to avoid burnout and in fact, find energy. Is that right? Yeah. And that, that's the story for the long haul, right? Is pull mm -hmm. it close, take one of those three paths, get a sense of connect. But here's the thing, Bart, this is what makes it so interesting is when you get thrown into a peak pressure moment, you have to do the exact opposite, which is you actually have to be able to disconnect a little bit from importance, not to convince yourself that it's unimportant, but to see it in perspective, right? You actually have to orient your attention in the complete other side of the, the, the direction and ask yourself, okay, what's not at stake here? Because when we're heading into a job interview or right. a sales presentation or a big speech, it's not like importance is elusive, like it's crushing us in those moments, right? It's all we can think about. We is know it's important. important. It yeah. <laughs> Right. And so, you know, I think both of these, this is kind of the, the duality of importance is I have to see what I do as important in particular over the long haul without being overwhelmed by what's at stake. Right. And, so and from a time basis, right? So, so take a very simple example uh, that I heard a lot in, in my research, which is, you know, big sales presentation. Again, you know, this is something that is, is bread and butter for you guys. I got to stand and deliver. I got to, you know, communicate really effectively. There's a lot on the line here from a, from a revenue standpoint. 
So I actually, in the preparation for that sales meeting or prep, uh, you know, I actually do want to focus on why is this important to me, right? I want to think about the, the, the commission check. I want to think about the revenue for the bonus pool. I want to remind myself, hey, maybe this is an input to an early promotion decision. Uh, I, I want to see this as a test of my capability because that's where I'm going to get the energy to prepare, right? I need the energy to prepare. Now, when I am about to walk into the room to give that presentation, if I carry all of that with me, like, oh my God, my commission's at line, you know, the bonus right. pool's at stake and early, I, it's going to be a disaster. So right. I got to flip immediately to the fact that there are important things in my life that are going to be there regardless of whether I win or lose this thing, right? I'm still going to have my family, my health, right. you know, respect mm -hmm. my call. And that's where I focus my attention is on what's not at stake mm -hmm. during performance. So the focus during preparation is to pull importance close. The focus during performance is to see things in perspective uh, because that's where the freedom wow. to perform comes from. Yeah, it's a real flip. So I, so understanding what kind of pressure am I facing? Is it for peak or is it long haul? And then either connecting or, well, if it's peak, getting away from the importance. <laughs> if it's long haul, <laughs> connecting to it. Let, let's yeah. talk uncertainty. Is there a difference of how to think about uncertainty in peak versus long haul? I, you know, you asked earlier, is there a part of this equation that kind of dominates? Are they all equal or... I do think uncertainty is a particularly sort of painful one for, for people. And I think it's one that's very front and center for all of us right now, just because of the, the amount of uncertainty that we've mm -hmm. been carrying for, for two years. I, and actually, when it, when it comes to one of my favorite pieces of research, uh, that's uh, not my own research, but it, it, the, the, some researchers at a university college, London, uh, did a little experiment that I think really illustrates for me uh, why or how uncertainty is processed by us as human beings. So, so what they did is they hooked their research subjects up to biofeedback equipment. So this is gear that measures the physiological markers of stress. So things like heart rate, respiration mm -hmm. rate, pupil dilation. So they were measuring signs of stress. And then they had them do this little exercise on a, on a computer screen where they would flip over virtual rocks. And if a rock that they flipped over on the screen had a snake underneath it, they would get an electric shock on the back of their hand. Sounds like Ghostbusters. Exactly. Right. This is the, the Milgram experiment. There's, you know, there's a bunch of these electricity-based experiments going on. And, you know, there, there, there is a pathway for sadists to get into academia, yes. I think. <laughs> uh, anyways, that, that's maybe a different point. So here was the interesting thing. People very quickly developed some pattern recognition when they were doing this exercise. And they realized that there were certain types of rocks that always had snakes under them, other types of rocks that never had snakes. And then there was this third kind of class of rocks that it was about a 50-50 chance there was going to be a snake under there. And when they looked at the data after the fact, what they discovered is that people got more stressed physiologically when they had a 50% chance of getting an electric shock than when they had a 100% chance of getting an electric uh -huh. shock. And I mean, cognitively, this makes no sense, right? It's like, okay, well, take the, take the door where you've got a 50% chance of getting out from the shock. It's the uncertainty that mm -hmm. creates the, the pressure for people, right? It's like, they want to know, am I going to get shocked or am I not going to get shocked? It's that, you know, middle ground where we start to experience pressure. And so I do think uncertainty for us as human beings is particularly uncomfortable. And when we can't flee it, we, we start to experience pressure. And so this does lead quite naturally to, well, if that's the case, our imperative is to eliminate uncertainty. And, and that is really true in peak pressure moments, right? The, the critical uncertainty tool in peak pressure moments is direct action, right? Identify what I can control and put my attention on what I can control so that I start to make progress. Because mm -hmm. when I make progress, uncertainty starts to abate and I start to get out of the traps that can accompany pressure, right? The, the poor decision-making, the emotional, the amygdala hijack, that kind of stuff. As soon as I reduce the uncertainty, I come back to a more centered place. Hmm. Um, one of my favorite uh, anecdotes or, or stories from the book, I guess it's kind of a metaphor more than anything, uh, came from a, a beach volleyball player I interviewed named Martin Reeder. And he talked about how in the game of beach volleyball, there is so much stuff that is out of your control. Right. The opponents are out of your control. The crowd's out of your control. The officiating's out of your control. The, the weather is out of your control. He said the one time that you have control is when you are standing behind the service line with the ball. Right. The serve is the one thing that you have within your control. And he told me a story of getting ready to qualify for the Rio games in 2016. And he said to qualify, we knew we were going to have to go into Mexico and beat the Mexican team. 
And he said, we knew this was going to be brutal because they're a really good team. The crowd was going to be really hostile, which sometimes influences the officiating. And he said, so Josh and I, his partner, he said, for six months, we practiced this really non-traditional serve. And in game three of the Olympic qualifiers, I moved to a totally different side of the service line. I served a ball they had no idea was coming for an ace. And that's what punched our ticket to Rio. Mm-hmm. And so his advice, he said, you know, whenever I'm in high pressure situations, I ask myself, mm-hmm. what's your serve? Mm-hmm. What is your serve in this situation? And so I do think that ability to get a little distance in peak pressure and go, listen, there's a lot of stuff out of my control here, but what is my serve right now? And that might be as simple as breathing, right? Getting my breathing under control. That could be a routine. We see that in sport all the time. Like, hey, everything's crazy right now, but I can focus on doing this routine that's going to bring me back to center. It could be my perspective that's within my control. Mm-hmm. And I can, you know, but we got to find a serve when we are going through through peak pressure moments. Yeah, it's so helpful. And, and you know, just your way of thinking about pressure and these you know, these three elements of the equation and how to manage them, I think is invaluable. You know, even though we've been dealing with so much uncertainty uh, for the last 18 months, I think the reality is uncertainty continues to exist. Just for example, you know, are we going to be back, return to premises? Are we going to be virtual? What will work look like? So I I just want to kind of take it to the next step here, because the, the questions that people are being asked as leaders at work, I mean, this is a podcast about how to lead for communication. How would you advise people on this webinar and this and listening to this podcast to think about using the research that you've done to lead and inspire people in their world could be at work could be out you know in their community to deal better with pressure well you know i think it's interesting I, this is something i've thought a lot about bart in particular with communication and decision making because that you know the flip side to the uncertainty story that i you know so find your serve what you can control mm-hmm. control that because that is such a default mode of action for, for a lot of leaders and, and high performers, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I'm in the middle of uncertainty. I find what I can control. I act. You know, this mode of direct action, find hammer, hit nail, you know, becomes right. a little bit of a, of a default mode that we try to apply over the long haul, over the grind. And, and the problem is when we try to apply that over the grind, mm-hmm. It actually reinforces pressure because there is uncertainty that we cannot tame. If we try to control everything over the long haul, it just builds a sense of helplessness and actually, you know, creates more pressure. And so the corollary to kind of taking direct action to control uncertainty is over the long haul, we've actually got to get to a place where we can embrace the fact that, listen, the future is out of my control and, you know, things are going to work out the way that they should in the end. And so I think to your question about leaders and what are some of the things that that leaders can really be doing, I think there is an important place for leaders when it comes to providing certainty around process as opposed to certainty around outcome. I have seen a lot of leaders, you know, even in the last kind of two or three months, dig themselves into a hole because they think their job is to provide certainty to people, to tame uncertainty and reduce pressure. So for and example, so it's like, all right, beginning of December, be... if you had a leader who said, we will be back on premises September 1st. Yeah. That, exactly. that obviously has not come to pass for many companies. And that would just dig them that hole you're talking about. And this is happening all over the place, right? It, you know, we are seeing this in large companies, small companies, private sector, public sector. It's like, we've got our bold plan. This is the you know exact dates that things are going to roll out on. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you hit those dates and it's like, ah, actually, sorry, change of plan, guys. You know, we're going back remote right. or, you know, oh, we're going to do three days in the office. And then there's this revolt. And it's like, which, you know, actually we hadn't thought, you know. So I think, you know, you know, I do think there is, <laughs> you have to balance, just like importance, there is this tension of, I got to see what I'm doing is important without, you know, overweighting the importance. I think there is this tension for leaders of, mm-hmm. we have to act to create certainty for people, but we also have to communicate that there is uncertainty that we just need to embrace. We need to accept. And I do think, you know, and this is more of, this isn't in the book so much as just kind of my evolving, my evolving. I had a great conversation with, with a, a, Harvard, a Harvard and HBS prof named Joe Fuller yesterday about exactly this topic. And his whole thing was, we've got to be clear with people. What, what we need to be clear with people about is the process that we're going to use and what we are certain and uncertain about. Um, And I think when we try to overdo it and provide false certainty, we get into a trap. At the same time, if we don't provide people with any clarity or certainty, that is debilitating as well. And so it's separating those things, I think, is where we find, you know, really effective leaders uh, doing good work. 
And I think it's really powerful because what you know, we know from the pandemic that employees are looking for authenticity and vulnerability, but they're also looking for leadership. And I think you've that can seem to be a dichotomy, you know, an unresolvable yeah. conflict. But what you're really saying is when you're in long haul uncertainty, long haul pressure, your job is to provide clarity around the process, but not the outcomes. And that's the best thing you can do to communicate as a leader today. Is that right? Yeah. I, clarity on what is the process? You know, I think in particular, this difference between steady state process, which is like, we're going to mm. do this, then this, then this, then this, versus what I think most of us are in the middle of right now is a process that is more akin to rapid experimentation, mm-hmm. right? So here's what we're going to try. Here's how we're going to gather feedback. And here's how we're going to make decisions on, you know, whether we keep doing that or we do something else. Right. So when I say clarity around process, that's really what I'm talking about is as opposed to announcing a plan, you announce a process for continuously improving a plan. Uh, and right. people have clarity on how that's going to work, even if they're not exactly sure on, you know, what the outcomes are going to be from that process. Dane, uh, I've gotten to enjoy asking you questions, but I think we should open it up to the group here. And there is a question box at the bottom of your Zoom link. You can see Q&A. If, if you go in there, um, you can type in your questions. As questions come in, I'll put them to Dane. So this is a great opportunity to put anything in. Um, we'll give it a few seconds here for people to write in. And if if no one jumps, I'm, I'm always hungry to ask more questions. So <laughs> do you want to just because I know it takes people a little bit. Do you want to talk yeah. about volume just yeah, briefly? While people are Because I know we talked about how to manage the other the first two components of the equation. So, yeah, talk to me about how how you should think about handling that, that third component of the equation. Yeah. So, so I think volume. Yeah, volume is a little bit unique in that, like importance and uncertainty are sort of uh, sort of subjective things like how important I tag something as versus somebody else, you know, how uncertain really is the, you know, volume is a little bit more of like an objective thing where it's just like, how big is the pile that you are faced with? How many tasks do you have? How many decisions, you you know? And, And so I think this is one that, you know, if I were to characterize the pandemic period, it really has been just a huge period of volume for a lot of people in the working world. The pace has accelerated to a degree to which I think is, you know, the word unprecedented gets thrown around a lot. I, I do think it is unprecedented. Everybody was like, oh, great, we're going to save our commute time. And then the commute time got filled up, you know, with all this additional productivity and work. Mm-hmm. And so I think when, you know, when volume is the dominant kind of thing that's creating pressure for people, I think there is this you know, what feels like a very rational tendency to turn to time management as the as the solution, right? It's like, hey, mm-hmm. I got a lot on my plate that I got to get done. I need to get more efficient in, in how I do this. And it, while this makes kind of rational sense, there is a big problem with this, which is, you know, at the end of the day, time management is a trap. It's, oh. it's a blind alley. It, it's a trap. It, you know, what happens to people who get really good at time management? Do they get more volume or do they get less volume? Right. So if you get the inbox zero, you just end up as instantly more emails can come in. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Every email is a boomerang, right? It's like if I get really efficient at answering 50 emails, it makes it much more likely I'm going to get 50 emails back, right? (laughs) You know, and, and just like most people's calendar is like a battlefield, right? And it's like if you manage to like through effective time management, you free up an hour on your calendar, Somebody in the organization is like, boom, right? Saya had a free hour from one to two. Like, if you could join this project, it's like setting off a signal flare. Right. <laughs> one of my the, one of my favorite cartoons, uh, Dilbert cartoons ever, was this cartoon where Catbert, uh, the consultant, comes in and he's talking to the boss, and he says to the boss, "You know, how do you guys reward your high performers around here?" And the boss says, oh, we load them up with work until they become average performers. Uh, And I, you know, and I think this is the promise of time management in a nutshell is like the more efficient I get, the more volume I I accumulate. And so I don't want to knock time management in, Mm -hmm. you know, listen, there's a role for time management. The the, the thing that I want to differentiate is that time management is a productivity strategy. Mm. It's not a pressure strategy. It's a great way to be more productive, but it doesn't reduce pressure. In fact, it actually I typically allows us. Yeah, it's, it allows us to accumulate more, which which mm-hmm. creates pressure. A lot of the norms around calendars changed, right? Because it used to be you would assume that you needed time to travel from one means to the next time, which you could use to reduce your volume. I'm thinking in terms of your yeah. equation. And now because of Zoom and everyone's just sitting there, everyone just books meeting after meeting, which thereby 
inherently increases volume during a time when uncertainty was massively increased as well. Could, could not agree. I think that's a brilliant example. And to me, that gets at, you know, when it comes to volume, it, it is really less about accommodating all of the things that people are asking of you. And it is more about, can we attack the root causes of volume, which are, you know, tasks, decisions, and distractions. And your example, to me, is a perfect example of, you know, I talk about when it comes to distractions in particular, you know, structure beats willpower every time. And, and what I mean by that is it is very hard to will ourselves to a better place from a volume perspective because we have so many external inputs. We have the people sending us those calendar invites. We have our friends in Silicon Valley who are, you know, highly paid to use the latest neuroscience to distract us from what it is that we're trying to do. You know, when we rely on willpower, like, oh, I'm going to say no to this stuff. I'm going to you know, tune out all my notifications. It's, it's insane. If we go with structure, which is what you're talking about, it's like, hey, I've got a half an hour commute there. I cannot book a meeting in that half hour. Okay. I don't need willpower, right? Structure is enforcing a reduction in volume. And so I think people's ability to actually build those structures in a virtual world to say, hey, you know what, from 1230 to one, not only am I writing do not book on my calendar, but I'm going into airplane mode and I'm turning Wi-Fi off on my laptop and right. I'm creating a half hour where I don't need to use any willpower to tune out distractions. I don't need to say no to anything because it's never even going to enter my consciousness. Right. I think that ability to use structure and alleviate the burden on willpower, I think, is increasingly important uh, in a virtual world. Yeah, I mean, even in an analog world, when I wrote my book six years ago, I had to go to my in-laws uh, cottage where there was no cell or Internet service for three day yes. writing retreats. And it took that to disconnect from the hive mind, you know, if you will. Uh, and be successful. But what's the kind of coda to that is now the cell service has encroached and there's not, <laughs> uh, there's not even an escape there. This they, is the I problem with airplanes. Like I airplanes know. for me were the perfect. Now there's, Wi-Fi. <laughs> now there's what? Now, luckily, the Wi-Fi there is still expensive enough and crappy yeah. enough that I, you know, my willpower actually is enough to stop myself from buying uh, the in-flight Boingo or whatever. But but yeah, it's, I, I, that's, a, that's a great example, right? It's like, and you don't need willpower. All you need is, you know, a, a lack of technology infrastructure and, and boom, like the distraction problem is solved. So yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really, really good example for sure. Dane, I know uh, we're reaching the end of our time here. This has been tremendous. I really appreciate, uh, you know, you sharing insights into the book. We didn't get any questions. I know you have a way people can connect with you on LinkedIn. You're super responsive. You're on Twitter. Highly recommend the follow. Uh, before we get to a few things I know you're offering everyone who's attending, let's just wrap it up with a question. Uh, how does this understanding of pressure change what leaders need to think about if they want to be effective in today's world? God, that's a tough question. It's a good one. I'm going through what are all the, what's the one thing that I would recommend? I think, so I'm, I'm going to go almost back to the start where I talked about this flip from pressure as this kind of nasty byproduct that we just have to manage mm -hmm. to pressure as an essential input to performance. And I think if there's one thing that I could, you know, leave with leaders is I think our job as a leader is not to be the heroic leader that shields everybody that reports into us from all the pressure. We just absorb it like a heat shield and like protect our teams. I, I think that is you know, people talk about servant leadership. I think that's sacrificial leadership. Like, yeah. I think that's a way of, you know, burning yourself out uh, on the altar of trying to protect your team uh, from pressure. I think, you know, my thing is, as a leader, you need, to be, you need to be a shaper of pressure, right? And so if we go back to the, the equation, I think there's kind of three roles, right? And, and I'll just put them up just, you mm -hmm. know, for people that are following along. Like, I think we are a shaper of perspective. So we have to help people simultaneously connect with how what we're doing as a team is important, like it matters, and free them up to have a little bit of a sense of play, right? You know, listen, what we do really matters. And at the end of the day, we need to have some fun with it, right? We go home, we've got families, there's stuff outside of work. This isn't the be all and end all uh, of, uh, of reality, right? So it's helping people hold that tension. That's the shaper of perspective role. I think here, this is our ability to shape a sense of control and self-efficacy. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, to get our team really oriented around what is our serve? 
What is the thing that we can control that makes the biggest difference? And put them in a place where they accept the uncertainty of the rally, right? We're going to get knocked off balance. We're going to get buffeted around a little bit. And there's always going to be a surf, right? We're always going to figure out from this new position, where can we exert some control? Mm-hmm. And then I think the third that, that we just talked about is to be a shaper of volume, right? You know, yes, we need to create the physical conditions for people to handle volume. That is, mm-hmm. you know, nutrition, encouraging exercise, sleep, all that kind of good stuff. And we need to be partners with our people in eliminating volume that's unproductive, right? Auditing the tasks that people are being asked to carry, auditing the, the you know, the decisions that we're making. Do we need to be making all these decisions or can we just have a rule, uh, you know, so that we don't have to continuously make these calls? So I think, yeah, you know, in all three regards, we're not standing and trying to block pressure. We're going, hey, there's energy under here, but we got to make sure that we are holding these three things in intention in a productive place. I love it. I love it. Great, great advice. And for those who haven't read the book yet, uh, I know you have something for people. So what can people do to start delving more deeply into how to thrive and embrace pressure? Yeah. So uh, so at, there's a QR code on screen with uh, with a link underneath if the QR is not working for you. Uh, th- this is uh, an opportunity for people to immediately get the first chapter of the book. If you are interested in what we talked about today, uh, it kicks off with a bang right from chapter one. So you'll get that right away. Uh, the other thing that uh, you'll get if you uh, if you head to that link is I- I've kind of built a series of sort of three little nudges. Uh, so one on importance, one on uncertainty, one on volume uh, that arrive kind of every two weeks. And they're just packed with resources, articles, ideas on how to manage importance, uncertainty and volume. So if as a leader, you want to take on that mantle of a, of a shaper of pressure, there's a wealth of resources in there that can kind of help you on that journey. And then finally, as you mentioned, Bart, if you have a question or, or want to dialogue around this stuff, uh, this is the best place to, to find me, to find us. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Dane Jensen, on Twitter, at Dane Jensen. And of course, uh, you can find out all about uh, me and us at uh, thirdfactor.com. Great. Well, Dane, really appreciate the conversation, the uh, return appearance on the pod. I encourage everyone to, uh, to read the book. And if you enjoyed the pod, if you, if you haven't been subscribing already, please do. It's on Apple, SoundCloud. Uh, We're now on Spotify and a few other platforms. Rate, give it a review. Uh, There's a lot of great guests back in the history, too, if you want to check it out. And if you want to experience what Dane does, really proud as a partner of Niagara Institute. We've got a program on the site that is kind of newly designed, incorporates some of this research and encourage you to check it out and register your interest there. So I want to thank everyone for coming today. This was a lot of fun. We'll publish this to the feed next week for those who couldn't attend in person. And uh, may you all thrive under pressure. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody. Hey, everyone. Take care. You too. Thanks, Brett.